we have to get away from our focus on wants versus needs. Wants create an endless cycle of overproduction and consumption along with waste and pollution. But at that deeper level, I think it also creates a society that's in a perpetual state of emotional hunger because wants are never satisfied. What did it take for our guest today to help an eco-surfboard startup become an industry authority and leader? What do we need to inspire a collective shift to valuing our needs over our desires? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. If you're not already signed up to the podcast weekly newsletter and you'd like for me to personally send you inspirations and highlights from the podcast, you can head to greendreamer.com to sign up. And now to our episode, let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the CEO of Firewire Surfboards, which he helped to establish as one of the most innovative and technically proficient surfboard manufacturers in the world. The company is also dedicated to producing the greenest, commercially viable product without sacrificing performance and durability. So you'll also soon hear about the process of making conventional surfboards compared to the green surfboards that they make. Before Firewire, our guest was also marketing director at Rip Curl USA and vice president of global marketing at Reef. So he's a wealth of wisdom when it comes to being a visionary, establishing companies at a global level, and also what it takes for eco-driven brands to thrive, starting from them being startups. Towards the end of our interview, he also shares some very thought-provoking comments about how the saying that our earth is dying is really unhelpful to the cause and how we should reframe this thought instead for us to feel a greater sense of collective urgency and agency. For now, Green Dreamer, starting with what got him into this world of sustainability, here's Mark Price. Having grown up in Durban, which is right on the coast in South Africa, and going to the beach from an early age, uh, I just always would watch these guys riding waves, and I was drawn to it. But my dad wouldn't let me start surfing until I was 13 when I started high school, because back in those days, surfing had a very bad reputation. And he was worried that I would turn into a degenerate, which uh, is debatable, but I don't think that happened. <laughs> and, and obviously, I've been surfing ever since, which is you know over 45 years now. So clearly, it's a passion of mine. On the environmental front, you know, surfing did lead me to a, 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 an environmental awareness, if for no other reason that you play in the ocean and you're exposed to it. And even walking the shoreline, you see a lot of the debris and junk that gets washed up on the beach. But in a more integral way, I was exposed to the whole Gaia concept in the early 80s, which definitely shifted my thinking in terms of looking at the world in a more holistic way. And um, I read a lot. And I, I remember reading an article in the mid-80s, and, and um, the Green Party in Germany had just won their first seat in the German parliament. And it was quite interesting because the reporter asked the guy, well, when is this going to happen? One seat, you know, you guys don't have much power and, and the whole green thing, what's it all about? 
And he said that it'll it'll tip when people figure out they can make money by doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. I think that is where we are today. And I think that's part of the reason that the environmental movement has gained so much momentum is because the commercial application of it is starting to take root. Because people don't just do the right thing for the right reasons. You know, we do live in a material world. Another touch point was The Ecology of Commerce, which was a book that came out in the early 90s, which was quite influential on my thinking. And in a similar vein, it married the business philosophy to an environmental philosophy and showed that they weren't mutually exclusive. And then probably, you know, culminating with my role as CEO at Firewire, where I'm now in a very privileged position to helm a company whose staff and ownership, which is a really important point, are equally passionate about the ocean and the environment and are also willing to make long-term investments. I think a lot of companies get trapped in this short-term thinking for various reasons, and oftentimes doing the right thing requires a payoff down the road, and so it's sort of like duty now for the future. For sure. So you've definitely, you've been surfing for a really long time. That's super impressive. Um, what have you personally experienced change over the years in terms of the beaches that you've surfed at or the communities, the ocean ecosystems? I think that the, well, certainly the equipment has changed dramatically and we, we can talk about that at some point. But I think the surfing, when I started surfing, it, it was a fringe activity, not a lot of participants, but perhaps more importantly, not a huge impact on the broader culture. And I think the biggest shift that's happened over the last few decades is that even though the number of surfing participants is still relatively small, the influence of the sport on mainstream culture and thinking has grown exponentially. And and that's been very interesting to witness. And concurrent with that, obviously, the industry of surf has grown alongside that, or perhaps even the industry of surf came first and fueled some of that broader market uh, you know, awareness. Yeah. And what do you think allowed the surfing world, despite it being small, to have this influence on the mainstream community? I don't really know, to be honest. Um, but if you, if, I, if you take the American example, you look at movies like Gidget, which was, I believe, from what I understand, some guy in Hollywood's daughter was hanging out at the beach and he got interested in the culture that she was associating with. And that's how that movie came about. Then obviously the whole scene at Malibu, which is right in the heart of LA culture, again, tying back to Hollywood, the beach boys, endless summer was certainly a a global touch point that put surfing on the map. So I think there were some sort of uh, media oriented cultural events that, put surfing on that path. And then obviously it gathered its own momentum from there. Yeah. So the media has a lot of influence. Yeah. And then obviously surfing, uh, sorry, America seems to influence global culture. So as it grew in America, it certainly spread its tentacles around the world. For sure. Well, so you joined Firewire when it was a startup back in 2006. And today the company produces some of the greenest commercially viable surfboards in the world without sacrificing performance and durability. I'm not very familiar with the surfboard making process. So can you walk us through like the process of making conventional surfboards versus the process that Firewire uses for its eco-conscious boards? Sure. So conventional surfboards are built from polyurethane foam, which is often referred to as PU, and polyester resins, which are often referred to as PE. So the terminology would be PU slash PE. 
And those materials are, are very easy to work with and create high-performance surfboards. The downside is they're not very durable and they're highly toxic materials. And a conventional surfboard also has a thin piece of wood running from nose to tail down the center of the surfboard, which creates uh, strength. Firewire blew all that up. And I just would like to mention that the original technology was developed from the by the, a quintessential backyard board builder in Western Australia who just decided that he could literally build a better mousetrap. And we feel that he did. And I think the company's success over the years is testimony to that. And he used a process called sandwich construction, which is quite literally like a sandwich. So we're able to take a very lightweight EPS foam and sandwich it between high-density aerospace composite skins on the top and the bottom. And what that allows you to do is break out of the paradigm that boxes in traditional surfboards. Because with a traditional surfboard, generally speaking, in order to make them stronger, you have to make them heavier. Mm-hmm. Whereas with sandwich construction, you can break that mold because the super lightweight foam at the center of the board reduces weight, but you still have structural integrity through the high-density deck skins applied to the top and the bottom. And then he went one step further. He removed the wood center stringer because he believed that controlled flex or increased flex would also increase performance like you see in snowboards and parabolic skis and skateboards. And he took that wood center stringer and he ran it around the perimeter of the surfboard. The resultant technology was quite profound, and um, we partnered with him and launched Firewire in, in 2006. That's awesome. So what do we know about like how these toxic chemicals used in conventional surfboards, like do they leach into the oceans when they're being used? Well, they do emit VOCs. Uh, and so when the, the original Firewire technology came to fruition, the University of Brisbane did a study on the VOC, which is volatile organic compound emissions, during the construction process and for the life of the surfboard. And they found that PUPE, which is traditional surfboards, emit 50 times more VOCs than EPS and epoxy surfboards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in addition, you could make the argument that the greener surfboard is the one that lasts the longest because it prevents you having to buy another one and use up more virgin materials and create more waste. So the increased durability, the dramatically reduced VOCs put us on a path from day one towards a more eco-friendly, less toxic surfboard. And then obviously we built on that. You know, we switched to 100% bio resins in 2014. Our entire production line is EcoBoard certified, which is like a lead certification in architecture. And uh, we're headed towards zero landfill by 2020, which we will probably hit ahead of that schedule. We're ISO 9000 certified, which is a quality control slash process standard at our factory. And perhaps one of the things we're most proud of is we've started our fair trade certification, which is a a labor standard, and we'll have that in place by early 2019. So it's not just about reducing the toxicity of the products. It's also about operating a business with uh, the highest level of integrity that we can and still obviously meet the, the economic principles that we need to stay in business. For sure. So lots of amazing things going on over there. For you as CEO of Firewire, what's been your personal greatest challenge in helping to grow and establish the company from it being a startup? I think um, for us, we were truly a disruptive technology because 
you know, when we launched in 2006, I would say that 90% plus of high performance premium priced surfboards, I'm not talking about the entry level softboards, but the, the premium boards sold through retail were PE slash PU. So we were potentially an existential threat to the majority of the surfboard industry. So they were aligned against us when we launched, which I understand. And we took a lot of slings and arrows, a lot of disinformation, and we had to persevere through that. So there were a lot of challenges, both personally and professionally, just to get through that. And then, of course, you've got the inevitable issues around a startup business uh, where you're burning through cash and you know, you're dealing with a multitude of issues. And in our case, we were vertical. We were setting up our own supply chain because there were no surfboard factories in the world that were willing to build the type of products that we wanted to make in the conditions we wanted to make them. So we had to set up our own factories and we also wanted to protect our IP as well. Most startups build their products through third-party factories, which gives you a big leg up in getting to market, whereas we had to actually go out and set up our supply chain from scratch in order to bring the company to fruition. So there were a lot of issues that that we dealt with. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of this is just the company's desire to do things differently and kind of challenge conventional ways of doing things. What gave the company and you guys the courage to do things differently? Well, I think I actually would credit um, you know Bert Berger, who, who was the original guy who developed the technology, and Nev Hyman, who partnered with him and, and uh, co-founded the company alongside with myself and a couple other uh, investors, because the original product had such a eco DNA built into it, and there were no legacy issues around the company because we were brand new. So from day one, we were on this path. And we all had a sensitivity towards environmental issues anyway through our previous experiences as people and and business executives. So all we wanted to do was further the direction that the company was already going in from day one. There was Mm -hmm. never any debate around, you know, should we change directions and be less toxic but more commercially viable (laughs) or whatever. It was just those conversations just never took place. It was always about – How can we maintain or increase performance, get to retail at a comparable price point, and constantly reduce the toxicity of the modern surfboard? Yeah. And what do you think it took for the company to break through that initial resistance from the community? You know, it took people riding the boards because the proof was in the pudding. And and one of the cool things about making surfboards or making sporting equipment it's, there is a subjectivity to it because there's a brand identity and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, if the surfboard you're riding does not outperform the board you were riding prior, then you shouldn't buy it and we have no reason to exist. Whereas in fashion and, and other industries, it's a lot more subjective. Whereas for us, there's a lot of objectivity built into our success. So the product worked and slowly but surely, the word of mouth spread. The customer experience was great and we just – grew and then all of a sudden you know we we started getting results on the world professional surfing circuit and it just uh, compounded itself and, and here we are today and i would mention that three years ago kelly slater who's the 11 time world champion actually invested in firewire and he's now our largest shareholder and rides our technology so mm. that was the culmination of you know a lot of hard work and doing the right thing and i, I would consider that uh, quite a significant endorsement of what we had done. 
For sure. So it's really important for products not only to be eco-friendly, but to actually be high performing and functional in whatever they're supposed to serve. Exactly. And lightweight. I mean, there's all these parameters that have to come into play when you're dealing with a surfboard and when you want to build it differently and in a less toxic way. Mm -hmm. Well, so as CEO, like you mentioned, you have to have a long-term vision while also being attentive to all the things that are happening on a day-to-day basis by your team that's across the globe. How do you most effectively balance your long-term vision with what's happening right now? You know, we were fortunate to go out and hire really good people from day one. And I feel that my responsibility is to get the big picture right and then create an environment where everyone can do their best work. And the way I would describe that is get the big picture right no matter what. Now, obviously, you want to get the tactics right as well. But the right strategy, even if it's poorly executed, still has a reasonable chance of success. And I'm not advocating for mediocre performance, (laughs) but that statement still stands. Whereas the wrong strategy flawlessly exercised is still going to fail. So I think that the most important thing is to get the company on the right path and then create a work environment where everyone can do their best work. I'd also add, though, avoid mission creep. I think a lot of companies get into trouble where they create a brand and they have what's called market permission and they start putting their logo on a broad cross-section of products and slowly but surely they dilute that core competency that the market came to rely upon them for. And generally speaking, I think the specialists will be around for the really long term, and whereas the generalists are the ones that will be challenged. Mm-hmm. So focus is really important. Discipline, yeah. And, and back to my original point of hiring the best people, you know, it, it will cost more than budgeted up front, but it'll be the least expensive path to success. And you also have to make a lot of big decisions for your company. And I feel like as creatives and entrepreneurs, we constantly have a lot of ideas. At least for me, I know I'm constantly distracted by new things that I want to try out. How do you decide what to try and when it's time to let something go or pivot? Well, to the first point, one of the benefits of being vertical, owning and operating our own supply chain, is the R&D process is 24-7 because we're literally telling ourselves what we want to work on. And so we don't have to try and convince a third-party factory that this is worth looking into. We just go for it. So I would argue that um, for us, we actually take on a ton because there's always that diamond in the rough and you don't know what it's going to be until you polish it a bit. So we take on a lot of projects, a lot of R&D around new materials and processes and, and products and a very small percentage make it through the funnel and into the market. But fortunately, as I mentioned, being vertical, the cost of doing that is not that great. Yeah, it takes time, but it's us doing the work. So we take on a lot of new stuff constantly. Coming back again to that uh, point about the best people, you know, we have an environment here where, hey, people give their opinions. I know that at the end of the day, I can make the final decision and the team will rally around it and off we go. But until that point comes, I mean, people are vocal and uh, I think that it leads to good decisions. So it's seldom a case where I would just walk in and kill something. It tends to be a consensus amongst the, the key management that develops over time through really robust conversations. And, and that's that's how we sort of go, come to that go, no, go, go decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been a couple situations where I've just felt so strongly where I've mandated something and some of them have worked and some haven't. 
So listening is important. And then I guess just testing things out and seeing how they go. Yeah. And again, dealing with hard goods and sporting goods, you know, you learn pretty quickly whether something works or not. Whereas again, coming back to the fashion analogy, that can become a lot more subjective as to what may sell or may not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So today, Firewire is a globally recognized brand in the surfing industry and also leading by example as a pioneer with its sustainability values. And I know it's been a long journey, but in addition to just the products being really of high performance, what do you think has been key to Firewire going from startup to becoming a global uh, authority? Well, clearly the product has had a point of difference and it's worked. So the user experience has helped drive the business to a great degree. The vertical supply chain, as I mentioned, has been part of it as well. Um, but I think, too, we've executed, and that comes back to hiring good people. You know, the surfboard industry, in many respects, uh, it involves fairly small-scale companies and in many cases can be real mom and pop. And that's that's not a criticism. That's just the nature of the industry as it's evolved. Whereas most of us came from outside the surfboard industry. So we had business experiences based on footwear companies or large retail chains or eyewear apparel companies. So I think we were able to bring some combined business acumen to the business that uh, certainly some of our competitors were, were unable to match. And that was a real competitive advantage for us to be able to draw on that broad cross-section of, of people from different industries and bring them into this industry. Uh, and we, I think we're, we're effective in that regard. Mm -hmm. And then, because I know you've worked with uh, both large and small companies and you've started your own companies. So with all of these diverse experiences, what do you most commonly see as a struggle that eco-driven startups face today? I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think you've got to look at the market as overtraded. No matter what the product category, there's too many brands and products vying for the consumer's attention. And it, it makes it very difficult to create a market space for yourself. So I think when you're looking to start a company with an eco-component, that cannot be the only point of difference. It can't be that you just made the exact same product, but it has a lower carbon footprint. You also have to have a real point of difference in the utility associated with your product or service. Um, Differentiate or Die is a great book on this topic, coupled with uh, the innovator's dilemma. And if you really want to go back into the archives, there's a book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, which came out in the early 90s, but it's still a worthwhile read today. So the eco component is critical. And I think today and certainly 10, 20 years in the future, companies without that uh, probably won't be in existence. But don't lose sight of the fact that you're also bringing a product to market that has to have a utility associated with it. And that needs to create a real point of difference in addition to whatever the eco credentials are. For sure. And then on the flip side, what do you think sustainability-driven startups or small companies need to compete against conventional large corporations that already dominate the scene? I would probably say the, the similar point. You know, you, you've got to have a real point of difference. Um, but at a more practical level, you need to have cash. And it's just an unfortunate reality that sweat equity will only get you so far. You've got to line up your capital in front 
in front of, of going into business. And you also have to be realistic as to what you need. I would liken it to remodeling your house or building a house. It always takes twice as long and costs at least twice as much as what you planned. So be realistic about the financial resources you're going to need to bring your idea to market. Yeah. So it's important to be able to invest in startups and you need it that. Is. It is. I mean, it takes labor and capital and, and don't lose sight of both of those components. And it sounds like you're pretty hopeful about this, but what are your general thoughts on sustainability and business in general? Like what trends are you seeing? Do you think we have reason to be hopeful that both new and pre-existing companies are headed in this healthier direction? You know, I'm not sure if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I go back and forth. And one of the, the definitions I get a chuckle out of is, you know, what's the definition of a pessimist? And it's an optimist with experience. <laughs> I think that sort of fits where I'm at. But more specifically, we, we need a complete reset on how we manufacture, consume and dispose of goods and services at least as far as the large swaths of the first and second world are concerned. And I, I think it goes deeper than just consumerism in the sense that we have to get away from our focus on wants versus needs. You know, wants create an endless cycle of overproduction and consumption along with waste and pollution. But at that deeper level, I think it also creates a society that's in a perpetual state of I guess, emotional hunger, for want of a, a better word, because wants are never satisfied. And I think our co collective consciousness on this issue has to be raised to create the opportunity for a seismic shift. It's not going to happen at the margins, and uh, it's a tall order. So that's the pessimistic view. At the same time, on the more optimistic front, when I look at issues like gay marriage and the legalization of marijuana, I mean, I've been around long enough to where I didn't think I would see those things in my lifetime, yet the dam has burst and look where we are. So I think you have to be optimistic. You have to fight the good fight. Um, but at the same time, I think if you're not realistic about the challenge, then you might get a false sense of the progress we're making. For sure. And going back to that mindset piece, how do you think we can inspire this global shift in trying to value needs over wants? Because that's like a really deep rooted issue, I feel like across the board. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that certain behavior, so I don't want to oversimplify things, but a long time ago, as a society, we decided that murdering your neighbor is just not cool. And we put rules in place. Stealing your neighbor's goods is not cool. And we created a sense of shame around certain behaviors. And I think we've got to look at overconsumption and um, in a similar vein. And it needs to be where, you know, if you're driving down the, the highway in a V12 truck, you should be shamed for it. If you have five acres of manicured lawn with a sprinkler system, you should be shamed for it. So I think the shift has to be so dramatic that where people change their behaviors because it becomes socially unacceptable to have such a massive carbon footprint in the way that you live. And look, we're all hypocrites on some level. We're all compromised on another level. So I, I, I don't want to get on too high of a soapbox and start lecturing everyone on how to live. But I do think that the issue is that serious that it's going to take that societal shift of the nature that I described or something like it to get to where we need to be. Mm -hmm. So awareness might just be key, just general awareness of what we're doing and 
what's not very healthy for us. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to a podcast the other day and there was a line in it that struck me. And, and by the way, the website in question is uh, Peak Prosperity with Chris Martinson. There's brilliant stuff on there. And basically what he said is people always say that the planet is dying, but it's not. We're killing it. There's a big difference. And I think we need to understand that we are actually the agents of what's happening. Because when you say something's dying, it's almost like an arm's length observation. Whereas killing something uh, puts it in the right context. And we're stealing the natural heritage from future generations. So we are murdering and stealing from the world. And I think that that's the context within which we need to view our behaviors today. So that would inspire more agency that it's us. Correct. Well, what's one of uh, your upcoming projects with Firewire that we can look forward to and support? Well, there's the Fair Trade certification, which we'll make a big deal about when it goes through because we think it's an important benchmark for our industry. We'll be the first surfboard factory in the world to meet that standard and we'd like to see others follow suit. We're also working on a replacement for fiberglass in our surfboard. It's, it's a sustainably produced material which has tremendous applications for bridges and roads and everywhere else that fiberglass is used. So if we're su successful with that, it could open up some tremendous opportunities for other industries, which we don't have a stake in. But uh, we're in partnership with the New Zealand government around this project, which involves replacing the fiberglass in a surfboard with wool. And um, we're the sort of the proof of concept tip of the spear. So we're, we're excited about that. And we hope to have a product in the market uh, towards the end of 2018. But I think, the, quite honestly, the best way you could support us is to make those lifestyle changes um, that we were just talking about. Because the issue is so much bigger than us. And we'd like to see the societies around the world move into a more sustainable direction. And so where can we follow all of Firewire's work online and on social media? Yeah, so we're on the usual platforms. I mean, you know, whether it's Facebook or Instagram's a good one for us because we, we work in a very visual industry and, and it's, a, it's a good platform for that. And then obviously there's a wealth of information on our website around what we do on sustainability. There's resin initiatives that we have. There's the waste reduction where we turn our EPS from dust into garden pavers. There's some pretty cool stuff going on. Before we go into our final five, I just wanted to tell you that I am so grateful for you and all that you do. I mean, you're here tuning in to learn how you can help our planet thrive personally and professionally and bring more harmony and connection to this world. Green Dreamer, you inspire me and I can't wait to see what you're going to make happen for yourself and for our world. It's so exciting. As always, feel welcome to share what you're working on or your biggest wins as of late with me on Instagram at Kamea Shane or through email at hello at greendreamer.com. And now on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an inspiring publication or social media account you follow? On Instagram, there's a, our daily planet always stops me. I'm always scrolling so rapidly through the feed and I get to those images and they just take your breath away sometimes. So I encourage people to check that out. And I must say that as a committed progressive, I really enjoy Real Time with Bill Maher and, and even The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. If people are in the mood for some intellectual heavy lifting or just inspiration, uh, Sam Harris's podcasts are pretty brilliant, even if it's just uh, listening to his 
commanded the English language. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> incredible. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? In our small Firewire-centric world, we are definitely having an impact. And while I stay informed about the bigger issues, I try, sometimes unsuccessfully, not to get discouraged by the enormity of what's going on and focus on the small changes that we're making because they are exciting and meaningful. Mm -hmm. What's one must-do for your health, either daily or weekly? Well, at my age, I have to stretch and then stretch some more. <laughs> Um, what's one simple action we can take for our planet's health this week? I know it's a, it's a well-worn topic, but we have to simply cease using single-use plastic bottles, period. There's just no debate around it. It just mm -hmm. has to stop. <laughs> And we have to stop buying so much stuff. What makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? The global consciousness around environmental issues is gathering momentum. And while I do think the window is closing, I do see hope, especially in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Um, I might need to go on a little bit of a rant on this one, if you can indulge me. Go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, we've got to keep fighting the good fight. It does feel overwhelming at times, but the alternative, which is becoming a cynic, is far worse. And get politically engaged. Companies can accomplish a great deal on their own, but we also need a total reset of the political narrative, which is far too focused on the accumulation of money and power. And we've got to stop worshiping at the altar of compounded economic growth. It's a fallacy. It cannot be sustained. Just witness the boom and bust cycles that, that prove it. I also think the baby boomers need to speak out. And Quite honestly, we need to sincerely apologize to the next generation for our inability to address climate change and the destructive behavior that we've exhibited. Because unlike the generation before us, we were aware. So I think there's a, a real mere culpa needed by our generation, which will be instrumental in shifting that global consciousness that we were talking about. So that's what I'd like to see happen. And we all need to change our behavior. And, it, and it's going to take a collective effort to do that. It's going to take a collective effort for us to move the needle forward. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview in the show notes at greendreamer.com. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can follow me on Instagram at Kamea Shane, where I'll be sharing more eco and wellness tips that I learn, regular reminders to recenter and stay grounded because your health is integral to your work and so much more. I look forward to connecting there. And finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>